0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. Tonight's episode is episode 95, and we are ending the year with the top five films of the year 2000. Frank, how does it feel to be down another year of the podcast?
1: <clears throat> um, weird. Yeah. Like knowing our track record with things, it's. Uh, I was actually thinking about this today. Um, when i was doing some stuff around the house like how crazy it is to actually see something through Mm -hmm. and like complete the things that we say we're going to start so yeah um so that's you know almost 100 episodes in like that's uh yeah more than i thought we would get to right
0: and i mean i don't necessarily see us slowing down um next year we already have Pretty much planned out, um, all the way. So
1: we we'll get episodes. Of them.
0: Yep. So we'll at least be, you know, like we're going at least at 150 <laughs> at, at the very least, like you know, yeah. before we're done. Um, but I don't see us. I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. So, um, oh, uh, but yeah, I yeah, I, I certainly didn't uh, expect us to get this far. Um. And we're slowly like just like working our way up in terms of like number of episodes, like when it comes to like other like kind of like film review podcasts and certainly film, um, like top fives and stuff like that. So, um, especially like as long form as we go. Um, so yeah, um, so we're going to be doing this. We will have a bonus episode, um, here in the next like week and a half sometime over the holidays. Um, that we'll be doing and um, uh, it'll be a first watch that I'll have uh, Frank watch a movie that he's never seen before Um, and then we'll be back in January with a normal schedule where we'll probably do the first two weeks take a week off and do the last week of the month Um, at least try to stick to that schedule as much as possible Um, and in January our episodes are going to be the top five animated films of the 1980s Um, the top five Luis Buñuel films and the first and another uh you know almost year-long series where we'll be covering the top five horror films of 1990 um and then we'll be following that through for the uh you know the first 10 months of the year where each month there will be um 91 92 etc um of horror films so um that is what we have on the docket. So getting back into the episode, the though, Frank top five films of 2000. Is there anything that you wanted to mention like runners up, you know, almost made the list honorable mention type things.
1: Yes. Yeah, so there's a few movies that we've talked about before that. um I don't know if they would have made the list. They would have been contenders at least um, American psycho specifically uh, in the mood for love. Kiss, Kiss bang bang, probably would have made the list. Um, I thought about Unbreakable, because um, I really like that movie. Um, he has stuff like Almost Famous um, and Gladiator and High Fidelity, which are movies that I really like, but I don't know if they rise to the level of the stuff that we put on there. Um,
0: some other like
1: horror-type movies, like Battle Royale came out that year, Pitch Black came out that year, and I really like both of those movies, although they're more, whatever, like genre films, I guess. Um... But I think yeah, I'm pretty confident with the list that we have. I think it's a strong list. Yeah, it was a pretty strong year overall. So,
0: yeah, there's a lot of good movies on there. A um, couple of things that are like cult movies um, that I wanted to ask you about a little more specifically. So, how do you feel about Snatch overall?
1: I hate that movie. Yeah, mm. I hate all those movies. I don't know why. There's <laughs> something. Gratingly unwatchable about them to me. Mm-hmm. I guess like that. What is it? That lock, stock, and two smoking those barrels. barrels. Right. There's another one too, right? The there is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like any of those movies. I don't like Guy Ritchie, so I don't know. I don't know what it is. Like I know that they're really popular, and I know a lot of people that really enjoy them, but I just I can't take it. Like it's too much.
0: Yeah. What about um Battle Royale?
1: I said Battle Royale. I like I,
0: yeah, but I was just going to talk about it just a little. bit. I mean, like, is, would that <laughs> be been close to making the list? Like, um, like how do you feel about that movie I, overall?
1: I really, I really enjoy Battle Royale. I think maybe mm-hmm. I've seen it too many times, hmm. possibly. Um, like I think that I think it's a very good movie, but I think it's very. What's the word I'm looking for? Like I don't want to say niche necessarily, but it's like it's very one note in what it's about, kinda. And even though I think like it's really well done and the performances are pretty great, um, I don't know that it really has like enough of like a universality Mm -hmm. to come over any of these movies. I really enjoyed. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but it's just I don't know what about
0: where would american psycho fall on this list
1: uh, it probably would have been fifth yeah hm. yeah interesting it would have taken the place of the fifth movie
0: okay hm. okay um I, I know you i know you're not a great fan of comedy but what about best in show
1: oh no, best in show is a good movie mm-hmm. um i i like those comedies a lot yeah i can't remember does that group have a name um, Just
0: the Christopher Guest, like what? Yeah, yeah like the, the state you
1: know. state main right. best in show. Um, what's the Spine, other one? Spinal, t- Spinal, Spinal Tap. Spinal right. um, Mighty, like,
0: Mighty Wind, which uh, yeah. Well,
1: I I love Mighty Wind. Waiting for Guffman. I mean, all that stuff. I think Mighty Wind is probably it's my favorite of their my favorite of their movies. I agree. Um. But yeah, it's like I. That's another one where. I don't even know if I even considered that one, really, but I really enjoyed that movie.
0: Yeah, I, I really like Best in Show. I don't, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it beats these movies, but it's a really good movie. I mean, but yeah, Mighty Wins, their best one. Um, Yeah. All right. Um, Anything else from this year that you wanted to mention? mm hmm Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. So the number five movie on your list is Sam Rainey's The Gift. It stars Kate Blanchett. I'm just, it's just going to be everybody that it stars. Kate Blanchett, Giovanni Ribisi, Keanu Reeves, Katie Holmes, Greg Kinnear, Hilliard Swank, Gary Cole, J.K. Simmons. It has a 57% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 55% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you put it on the
1: list? Uh, so Kate Blanchett plays Annie. She's a widow who's gifted with um, clairvoyance, I guess, is what it is, or extrasensory perception. Um, She makes her living by doing, like, psychic readings for people in this, like, small town in the south in Georgia, I guess. Um, She has this vision that a local girl who's the fiancé of – what is Kinera? Principal, high school principal or something that um her corpse has been like thrown in a a pond or a lake or a bayou whatever um so she tells the sheriff about it um they search the pond by the home of um henry reeves who's the boyfriend of one of annie's clients um they find her corpse in the pond, and he's arrested for the murder. Um, it's revealed that Keanu Reeves and Katie Holmes were having an affair, um, so he's sent to jail. Um, but basically, it turns out it wasn't him that did it. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to spoil like the endings. I think that the mystery of this movie is probably. The best part of it and I don't know like I feel like everyone's seen The Gift but maybe not you know like it feels like one of those things that like it could slip through the
0: cracks this movie I think easily
1: especially because of when it came out and the fact that Raimi then went on to have like much greater success with um like the Spider-Man franchise and became like more well known for that um and it had like a lot of success before this too like on the indie front, um but her precognizance is correct and she finds the actual murderer um, it's got some really great performances in it um blanchett's really good and i don't know that i had seen her in an awful lot before this um maybe like one thing this is pretty early in her like major acting career um Keanu Reeves was pretty amazing in this movie at the time. Like, I remember watching it and thinking like, Holy shit. Like, cause you know, Keanu Reeves was just, uh, that old stereotype of him as being like the stoner or like idiot, basically without any acting skills, but or, he comes or, off. As, right. Pretty,
0: or a giant mnemonic or, you know, like something, you know, that kind of shit that he was doing.
1: Yeah. yeah but even then you think of him as Neo and, you know, and Short, maybe, right. yeah. Whoa, yeah, or whatever. Right. Um, but really menacing in this movie, like, plays an uh, abusive asshole really well. Yes. Um, Greg Kinnear's really good in it. Uh, Simmons is really good in it. You know, it's just, it's, it's really, like, an all-star cast if you look at, like... Sure. Especially, like, what those people went on to do afterwards. Um, but all really, like, really good performances. Um, I... I, I didn't read anything about it on purpose because I kind of wanted to just go into these movies sort of like with just my own impressions of them and not like take other people's opinions. But I was wondering how much Raimi had been influenced by um, uh, the Japanese and like j hmm. that had like been prevalent for a few years before this. Because um, there's several scenes in this movie and in particular the first time you see Katie Holmes. As a corpse, you know, like um, when she sees her in the bathtub or whatever, uh, very reminiscent of one of the opening shots of Ringu, um, where you see the dead body of the young girl in the um, the closet, like with her face frozen open. Right. Um, so just you know, for Raimi to kind of come back from sort of like his his start, which was in horror, and then he had done a bunch of. I mean, the movie he came off of before this, I believe, is for love of the game. Yes, is the one before this, and that's correct. Like, not a not a very good movie, in my opinion,
0: yeah. <laughs> or at least
1: not like incredibly well received. Um, but then to come back kind of to his roots and just make this like really like small, close to the best horror movie. I don't know. I think there had to be something that inspired him there, and I was just curious if maybe if you read anything, <laughs> if that was something that he had kind of taken inspiration from.
0: Uh, uh no I, I i didn't read anything about like that necessarily i mean mo- most of the story that was out contemporarily about um this movie in terms of the production and filmmaking process was more about um billy bob thornton you know writing the script for it um and or co-writing the script and you know he still has that sling blade fame and i'm guessing the Angelina Angelina Jolie marriage is right around that time, probably, if I remember correctly. Um, So, like, he has popularity from that. So, the story is focused a lot less on Raimi and a lot more on Billy Bob and Thornton's involvement in
1: the film, more than anything. Mm -hmm. (sighs) That's unfortunate, because, I mean, I think it's got a decent script, but I really think that it's the... I don't know. The tone and the visuals, I think, that bring the whole movie together.
0: Yeah, and I think the acting... Really elevates this movie. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, yeah,
0: like beyond like anything especially.
1: Else. I I feel like it got made fun of at the time, but I I really like Giovanni Ribisi's performance in this. Like, I I feel it's. Um,
0: I thought it was better than a lot of his performances.
1: Like an underrated part of the film, especially that there's a real deep feeling of like sadness and i don't know just like latent horror like what happened to this kid and you know just the end result that he's kind of the one that that saves her in the end um and it was his you know whatever that that twist in the movie mm-hmm. i said i wasn't gonna give away and then i'm certain to to... anyway right um but yeah like i really enjoy his performance in it and um i think blanchett's really good in it um yeah, just it's it's just it's overall a very solid movie. I think it's elevated a little bit above like I hate to say like the standard fare of a horror movie, but you know. Like it's more it's it's just as much of a murder mystery as, as, as like a ghost movie. Um and I think it's the best parts of all of that, and I think it's really well done.
0: Yeah. Um the big um so you know, I try to find stuff that either I think is like might have a point or, um, or is going to piss you off, um, or is just a common critique, like I find among many critics. Um, Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post talks about kind of like the, uh, the stereotyping that goes on, what, what he sees as the stereotyping going on in this movie of Southern types, um, um, particularly criticizing. Billy Bob Thornton who's you know from Arkansas himself of kind of engaging in some of these stereotypes um but he talks specifically about uh the old Hollywood cliches of the society slut who fornicates with other men while her gentle decent clueless fiance waits in the country club foyer uh the redneck scumbag who likes to slap his women folk around the women folk herself who likes to be slapped around the bullprout but ox dumb sheriff the society sluts rich old daddy the clueless um sleazy small town prosecutor um and he says to complete the grits trifecta the, the other cliches are geographical and visual swamps the clog with cypress and mandrake and palmetto bright moons scurvy pickup trucks by scurvy men and scurvy baseball caps with caterpillar above the bill and so so on and so forth um do you think that in, that it engages in too many, like, kind of, like, almost, like, southern gothic, like, you know, southern stereotypes and stuff like that?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes tropes are tropes because they're effective, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I like the cypress trees and the mangrove and the bayou, and I don't know. I mean, was that a contemporaneous review of yep. it?
0: Pretty much most of them
1: are like, you know, when they're from the major papers, usually. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the crux of this movie is about, like, surviving abuse and, you know, the fatal consequences that can come from, like, mental and physical and sexual abuse against people, you know? So. Yes. I agree. And it's also about pulling away, like, the, whatever, like, the secrecy that a lot of small-town cultures have about talking about that stuff, you know, and it, it uses her psychic powers as, like, the, whatever you want to call it, like, the MacGuffin, not the MacGuffin, but the, um, the Ex Machina for that, to tell that story, but that still is a story that's being told. Right. Yeah. I that- mean... Like,
0: Ramey, Ramey, Ra- I think, really loves the South. I mean, if you look at some of his other stuff that he's done, um, particularly, I'm thinking um, he-, he loves geographical locations. Like, he he really, like, loves to get into an area and kind of, like, you know, just kind of, like, have, like, a really interesting setting a lot of times. Like, you know, um, even though I'm not the biggest fan of those movies, uh, I'm sour on the first one, but it's like, he really likes to show new york and spider-man you know like he, he really loves like you know the the idea of that setting and tries to utilize that um i think the simple plan he does the same thing um you know uh what else uh the, there's just
1: something on the tip of my tongue oh, plans, i think yeah
0: yeah but it's like even stuff he produced like um he produced american gothic back in the day that gary cole television show that like was set like in the south like you know um it's like there's I don't know. I I think he's, like, very much, like, into, like, you know, uh, those kind of things, and, I mean, I I think also those specific stereotypes that he brings up, it's, like, you're looking for that right away, like, when you're watching it, I think.
1: Um, So, here's an interesting question, and I don't, obviously, can't do it now, but Mm -hmm. I think Eve's Bayou is this year as well, or right around this year? Yeah, it's I'm curious, like, if the criticism of that movie is the same. You know what I mean, like, right? Because it uses a lot of the same. I mean, I I like Eve's Bayou. Um, there was some lists we were talking about recently. Now Yves Bayou's got to be like mid '90s, like It's it's
0: '97. I'm I'm looking it up.
1: So there were some other lists where I thought about putting Yves Bayou on there. Spoiler alert. But, Mm -hmm. like, similar, you know what I mean? Like, so is that criticism there? Like, I don't know. I just think that... I think if it's exploited, then maybe, you know? But I don't think it is exploited. Like, I think that it's just using, like, these common film tropes to... That
0: criticism story I mean, in a way that's... Just, just, so you know, just so you know, I just quickly did research. He, he does not have that complaint about he's by you, Stephen Hunter. Like, it's... Sometimes, reboot. like,
1: having things that are familiar in a movie, you as a viewer, tells a subconscious portion of a story without forcing you to see the minutiae of it on screen. You know what I mean? Like, if you see things that you're familiar with from other films you don't always need to be told it in that movie to understand what's happening, you know? So it like, as right. like a, like a storytelling device. Like I'm fine with that. Like I understand like when I'm watching a movie about like abusive relationships in the South, like I just kind of know, you know what I'm getting. Right. And then it's about the delivery of it as opposed to, uh, I don't know. I, I don't ever like complaints like that, especially if you're not talking about like a pure exploitation movie
0: yeah like he he uses pretty heavy description in this ease by you um like describing stuff like with a lot of adjectives but doesn't criticize like like stuff that is kind of uh uh stereotyped you know um you know mall straped old white houses just off the river house with door columns and many bedrooms you know blah, blah blah like it's like it's the same kind of shit like
1: and well like isn't that
0: yeah he doesn't he doesn't that he, he really likes ease by you
1: like him and- it. And listen, fantastic fucking movie. Like sure, I'm not celebrating yeah, yeah, yeah. that movie uh, at all. I understand. All. Yeah, I but
0: uh, yeah. Well, we're just looking at him and what he says about, it and seeing there's any kind of hypocrisy there. But right. <laughs> be consistent. Your, uh, yeah. your the still. the only other criticism I saw that was like fairly consistent with this movie is just that uh, not that Blanche's performance is bad necessarily, but the character is a pretty passive vehicle. Um, and I, I'm paraphrasing like a, a lot of people's like criticism. Um, but it's like kind of like this passive vehicle in the movie and that really doesn't do a lot Um, in it so it kind of like makes it a little less interesting, maybe exciting I
1: guess um, I mean I get that but at the same time like the whole premise of the character is that she is a vehicle yeah. for right. this that's otherworldly the, force that's kind of like
0: it's the nature of ESP or whatever
1: you know like right. their buoyance, yeah, like compelling right. her to to know these things, that she doesn't even necessarily want to know, yeah. because it makes her life more difficult. So, right, yeah. I mean, I guess I get that complaint, but I think that complaint misses the point of the movie. So, yeah. I don't okay. Um, yeah, we didn't even mention like if,
0: if anybody, if people know this movie, you know why people know. Well, I should probably say probably men. Men know this movie, and um, even if they never seen it, and it's because this is um, this is where Kate Holmes gets naked. Um, And that's where a lot of people know this from, like, around this time period in, like, the early 2000s is, is because of that fact. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I saw this around the time that it came out, probably, like, in one and uh, watched it again. I was surprised that you put it on the list because I didn't remember it being... I, don't, I was not offended by it. I didn't, like, think it was bad or anything like that. But it's, like, I certainly was... But, no, it held up, I thought, even 20 years later. Like, it's still a pretty solid movie and better than I thought it was. So, um, at the time.
1: Yeah, at the time, I felt like I was in the minority because I really loved this movie a lot yeah. when it came out. And I don't remember yeah. other people having the same...
0: You compare this to something like Skeleton Key a few years later after this. And it's, like, the, like... I'm assuming Skeleton Key was because some studio exec somewhere like saw this movie and was like, we need to do that and tried to hire some big name actors to be in it very similar to this and that movie just fucking fails um, like in pretty much every way, I think. But um, this movie's good.
1: Yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed this
0: movie. Alright, so number four on your list is Dancer in the Dark. Uh, it was directed by Lars von Trier. It stars Bjork, Catherine Deneuve, David Morris, and Peter Stormara. It has a 69% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 91% from audiences. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and
1: why it's on the list? Peter Stormara? Is that yeah,
0: he's? That's how you say it, yeah.
1: I have never said his name right. <laughs> I always say Stormare. Right, yeah. Um, I always did too, and I looked it up just, just to see. And yeah, it's Stormara. So, takes place in the 60s in Washington State. Um, it follows uh, Bjork's character of um, Selma, who's a single mother immigrant from Czechoslovakia, um, who came to America because she was slowly going blind and realized that it was like her only opportunity to make sure that her son, who also suffers from like failing vision, um, would have the necessary medical treatment to avoid the same fate that she's whatever subjected to. Um, she's poor. She works in a tin press factory where they make, um, like metal sink pans or something, I guess. Um, some kind of like die fabricating place where they're making, um, she operates machines that she can't do very well because she's like increasingly losing her ability to see. Um, so she lives in a world that's predominantly driven by sound, um, and she loves music, and she loves the music just of, like, the natural, the natural world and, like, um, whatever, like, the ambient sounds of life, and um, so as a musical, like, a lot of the music comes from that, like, you know, the precise, driven machinations of like die presses and railroad cars and just all these things that she hears around her that lead her into like song um she's also starring in an adaptation of the sound of music which she has to bow out of because she can't see to do the parts of it um she lives in the guest house of the town i guess he's the sheriff um Sheriff, or he's a police officer in the town, yeah,
0: like the only police officer in town, or something. Basically, like one of um,
1: the played by David Morse, one of my favorite character actors of the nineties. Um, Morse is in extreme financial trouble because his wife is um, thinks they have more money than they do, so that she overspends, and he never has enough money to pay his bills. Um, Selma keeps all of her money that she saves in this, um, what you call it? Like a sugar cookie tin, basically, yeah. like hidden inside, like a panel inside the wall of her kitchen. Um, Selma has these two, one potential romantic interest played by Peter Stormar, um, and her best friend and Catherine Deneau, um. Basically, David Moore steals the money from her because she refuses to loan it to him because she says it's not hers, it's for her son. Um, when she goes to confront him, she finds that he's told his wife that she had attempted to come on to him. Um, he's actually, so as tragic as this movie is in a lot of ways, he might be the most tragic character. Um, just because like he's so, and tragic in like a really despicable way because he's so weak and so unwilling to admit his own failings to anybody but... Um, Selma, who I guess is the only person he really views as being just as weak or just as vulnerable as he is, Um, so he basically steals her money and then frames her for trying to steal his money, and then it leads to his death and her in essence being tried for his murder, um, which she refuses to reveal the truth of the situation because she promised him that he wouldn't. Um, She's able to get the money to the optometrist um, and then she dies, really. And you find out at the end that the surgery was a success and the boy's vision is saved, but that she's passed on. Um, the ending is friggin' brutal, like to watch. Like, it's so sad, like watching. And you, you brought this up. We talked, we're talking about this off air. Um, I remember the actress's name, um, but she plays the, uh, Brenda Brent, the security yeah, guard? Yeah, Sia a yeah. Um, And like, Um uh, just, just her reaction Frank, just to something. <clears throat> someone who's been like
0: Take take a step back just a sentence or two, you broke up for some reason. Oh, um about Brenda. Let's just start there.
1: So Brenda, who's the security guard, who's kind of formed this maybe sisterly, maybe like romantic like bond with selma Mm -hmm. um just like devastated by the fact that you know this woman's going to die and selma who's been like completely stoic the whole time just breaking down as well and realizing she's gonna be put to death And when they put the hood over her head because it's death by hanging which i guess was still a thing in the 1960s Mm -hmm. um i don't know it's just all terrible and hard to watch and really sad um but it's a really beautiful movie. It's the majority of it's filmed in the dogma, um, what is it, dogma 90,
0: 95,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, style, uh, which is very naturalistic, with like not a lot of camera tricks or lighting. Like most of it's natural light, um, with the exception of the uh, musical sequences, which are filmed on digital video. Mm-hmm. So they have a very Almost like shockingly alien look to him in a lot of ways. Like they feel completely disconnected from the rest of the film, and it's interesting because at the time, like I remember seeing this movie when it first came out. Um, did you didn't see digital video in major motion pictures that much? But I guess what Von Trier did was he filmed on digital video, so he could film so many different angles of each of the musical sequences so we can cut them without like incurring like huge expense and having to do it on um you know like actual film stuff right. but it really works well um i think the music in it i like the music in it a lot it's not traditional um musical like music as you would think of it um the sequences are very i mean it's done in like the style of York's music, which is, yeah, not everybody's taste. I would say um, it's kind of like a discordant, like whimsical indie pop style. I guess I don't. Even know yeah, what that, but what's uh,
0: interesting about this particularly is how, like you know, um, these songs are all related like intensely to the film through the idea that Selma hears sounds that make music to her and all these like songs have like some kind of basis in like the reality that she's living in. So, you know, um, in terms of like, you know, the, um i can't remember the name of the songs like off the top of my head but it's like you know the one in the factory you know it's like it's the it's the mechanical sounds of like the factory there's this song with the train like with her and um right you know stormara you know and like all those, those are the that-
1: two. yeah those are the two best songs the Savalda when she's singing to um catherine duneau that's in the factory and then i see the seen it all right, right. um yeah. with stormara yeah. uh on the train which also, just the chore- the choreography of that is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's just... It's- yeah,
0: and I really like those musical sequences in the sense that it's still very realistic, even though they're musical sequences. It's not, like, over the done. It's not what what's reference to the movie, like, walking up the, the stairs of a cake or something. It's, like, it's not right. that overdone Hollywood production. It's very realistic to what she has known and experienced, you know, like, um, it's, it's stylized, but it's stylized in this very kind of like earthy way, um, as opposed to this like very like slick cinematic way. Um, and I think that's really interesting as well, like about those, um,
1: and, you know, made to feel that way more just because of the fact that it is shot on digital video. Like it looks, um, it looks real. Like that was something Personally, like, I felt like you didn't really see that at that point in time. And I thought that right. was really impressive, like, when I first saw it. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, it's very tragic. Uh, Bjork is, I think, really impressive in this movie, considering that she was not an actress. Um, right. And was surrounded by people who pretty talented actors in their own right. Um, yeah. This movie was a little difficult for me to watch this time, mostly because... Like, knowing the controversy that came after this, especially in, like, the wake of the Me Too movement with um, uh, Von Trier, like, the accusations of him um, harassing and kind of, like, making Bjork uncomfortable the entire time during the filming of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Yeah, they're pretty horrific. I didn't know about them until you
1: told me, but... Yeah, I remember remember hearing about it at the time because I remember, like, the way that it was framed. In um, the media, in a lot of ways, was that Bjork was difficult to work with, and right. yeah. that she had all these antics on sets <laughs> It's always constantly. the way.
0: That was always the way, right? It still is right. sometimes. Yeah. You know, so it difficult. actually,
1: it actually, for a long time, clouded my opinion of Bjork as an artist because I always thought of her as just this like
0: prima donna type.
1: Yeah, eccentric prima donna that yeah. just whatever she wanted. Right. But um. Like, going back and reading it and kind of getting, like, some other perspective from other people, um, it feels like that Bjork, you know, was definitely on the receiving end of some pretty horrific treatment, so that makes it more difficult. And then just some stuff that, I, you know, like, learning about Von Trier, like, outside of that incident, um, just makes it a little more difficult to enjoy his movies as much. Um, But, yeah, I mean, this movie is fantastic. Um, one of the most daring movies I think of the 21st century and, um, definitely worth watching if you have the inclination and yeah. two hours to spare. And honestly, like I've seen it all as one of my favorite, um, musical numbers in a movie in a really long time. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, um, I, I saw this when it came out. It was one of the few of these that I actually like saw in the theater, like indie, like indie type movies. Um, like this, uh, me and friends of the podcast, Aiden Boyer and Mike Bledsoe, went up um, to see it at the the Bourse um, in Philly. I think it was. Um, that's the one with the escalators, right? Um, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And um, yeah, I loved it then. Um, Listening to the soundtrack, like a lot. Have not watched it since then. Um, it's one of those movies where I wasn't saying I was never going to watch it again, I knew I would someday, but it just never happened. And um, this is the first time it happened. Uh, still really liked it a lot, still just as fascinating, I think, from a filmmaking standpoint. Um, particularly with the musical numbers, really great performances. Um, I think I was too young to get the um, the joke of Joel Gray, um, playing Old Rick Novi, the um. Uh, the, the premier Czech, um,
1: pop dancer, and
0: yeah, like you know, musical, musical star, uh, yeah, like. um, uh, but Joel Gray playing him, you know, like the, the Jennifer Gray's father, the famous, um, you know, like uh, cabaret, wicked, you know, like, um, all those things, but this like American star, like musical star playing this, you know, um, uh, I, I didn't get that, like, kind of like little in joke then, um. But yeah, the acting in this is phenomenal. Um, I thought I, reading about this movie, I thought it was really interesting. You talked about Bjork's performance, and yeah, like she's like really stands out in this. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that she didn't really have much training at all um, in terms of acting, and so she kind of had to like figure it out like as she was doing it. And she basically developed a form of method for herself. Um, like she she basically like recreated in her own way method acting um so she acted by feeling and so she would try to like feel as much as possible of like what that character might be feeling at that point and apparently like it mentally exhausted her um so the harassment on top of all that was even particularly terrible on her during this during this time um but yeah great damn performance from her from someone who like doesn't have any kind of acting background um, whatsoever.
1: Um, so it, was yeah, really, yeah. it was really difficult for me to consider where to put this on the list. And in all honesty, all four of the top four, like I think I struggled with like which one was, you know, it's, right. it's a matter of degrees, but. Sure. There was something about watching this the second time, and I really think it might just be the whole Von Trier thing where I was like thinking about that a lot that made me not feel the same way that I felt about it. But I still thought that it's an amazing movie, and yeah. I think it's really worth watching. And I think it's definitely, like, a classic of modern cinema and a really important film in the past 20 years.
0: Yeah. I um I do want to just discuss a little bit uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum's review of this um, from the Chicago Reader. We shit on Jonathan Rosenbaum a lot on here because he's kind of a dick. But um he is a very well-informed uh, movie, movie reviewer and like, you know, does a lot of thinking about the stuff that he writes. Um, but he um, was reading other reviews of this because like, he was trying to get a sense of like why people for people in foreign countries tend to like this movie more than American critics did. Um, and, um, and, and to his point, like, you know, Von Trier is a guy who constantly criticizes the United States and, um, without having ever stepped foot in the country um not that you can't do that obviously like you know like everybody can do that and can be well informed about like the country but like he's uh what is what is that like he's not agoraphobic but like he's like afraid of like the travel by plane and stuff like that like you know so um like fear of flying um so he never actually like takes a plane anywhere um and very rarely has become kind of like you know recluse like where he just kind of stays in his home country um, without traveling that much, doesn't go to award shows, like, even in Europe, but, um, so, but he, he criticizes, you know, Dogville this, you know, and this is a very intense criticism of the American justice system, um, like, and, um, there are a lot of aspects of that that I like, you know, and has been proven right, I think, like, over time, the way we treat immigrants, the way that, like, you know, the criminal justice system works, um, you know, I, I so there's a lot of elements of that that I like, um, he, he's looking into these foreign, uh, reviewers and he says that, um, he talks about this one particularly like Argentinian reviewer, um, last name Quentin, um, that, uh, finds the character Selma, like very touching. Um, and Rosenbaum goes on to say that he's infuriated by the character a lot of times. Um, he says that she's so, uh, you know so uh ask for so little complain so seldom is in such perpetual denial about her problems that i find her virtually indigestible as a character the movie's not so much about her modesty and compliance the stupid grin in which she greets virtually every misfortune as it is about von Trier's appreciation of her passive suffering not quite the same thing as respect or understanding of passive suffering uh, which ultimately becomes an exaltation of his own feeling rather than hers. Um, he goes on to kind of talk about a little bit about like dogman and stuff like that. That's not important here. Um, and how it doesn't quite qualify as like a dogman film. Um, he goes on to talk about... Uh, Considering the fervor in which the, both films, Breaking the Ways, he's talking about in *Dancer in the Dark, um, he imposes a highly contrived worst case scenarios on obsessively focused uncomplaining and childlike heroines who behave like mental defectives. It's a hypothesis that can't be shrugged off that there is some sort of sense of a desire to abuse children. Um, stick with him here on this. Though. Um he says the queasy mixture of worship and condescension, admiration, and sadomasochistic relish evokes Fassbender and his professed mentor Cirque, though at least Cirque and Fassbender had left his political agendas to complicate their scenarios, concealed in Cirque's case, blatant and Fassbender's. Von Trier, by contrast, aspires only to affect us, not to change anything at all about the way that we live. I'm deeply against the death penalty, he notes in a press book for Dancer in the Dark. On the other hand... Um, he says execution scenes are God's gift to directors. They're very efficient, and if you're going to be a martyr, you have to die," says von Trier. And guess which sentiment ends out and wins out in the end. So it really, so is it really admiration that uh, for Selma that the film expresses, where a certain malice crossed with a sympathy for the suffering of a dumb animal? Maybe it's the same. It's some of the some of both, meaning that what Quinlan and I um, the, the Argentinian reviewers see derives in part from our respective experiences, um, and what they teach us. Um, speaking into, uh, an interview about her much-publicized Battles Von Trier during and after the shooting, Bjork noted that after seeing Breaking the Wave, she assumed he identified with its heroine and subsequently decided that he actually identified with her sicko husband. In Dance from the Dark, I think he identifies not only with both Bill and Selma, which is natural, Um, but also with both the money in the box, the money box and the rope that hangs Selma. Um, And I only say that just because I know we, I I talk a lot of shit about Rosenbaum a lot of time on here. I think that's very, and very maybe goes too far a little bit at times, but it's a very apt reading considering the things that we know now about Von Trier um in terms of his trilogy that comes later in the 2000s you know and the the reports from multiple actresses about his behavior um i wonder how much of that isn't like possibly close to being close to the bullseye maybe
1: yeah so i partially agree with what's being said there and again like I went from absolutely loving this movie to just really, really liking this movie, Mm -hmm. watching it now. And part of that does come from the fact that you're just kind of dumbstruck by the fact that this woman won't speak up for herself because you know that she could still get what she desires, which is her son's treatment, but still not die. And I think one of the things that maybe like I took it as was just a critique of like her communist background in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. like she came from a society where you're not allowed to not allowed to talk and not allowed to whatever um, you know like you keep things inside because things can be used against you and if you have to sacrifice yourself to save your family that's what you do and I don't know, I mean, I just kind of think that that's, I think it's frustrating, but I also think that that's more or less like what's being said there. Hmm. Um, but it, it's, like, I agree with the idea, like, because he brings it up there with Yvonne Trier, like, who does he sympathize with? And I definitely think he sympathizes more with David Morse than he does with Bjork, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, because both deaths are just as touching. And you're really meant to understand his psychology for what he does more than you are Bjork's unwillingness to, like, you know, after this man is dead, just to say, like, look, this is what happened. I don't know. Yeah. So I, I mean, kind of it, agree with that.
0: Yeah. I, I, and if I just took it just one kind of one step further to go back to the idea of, like, the fastbender circ thing, um, I do think that there is socialist, I don't want to say propaganda, thought in some of Aaron Butcher's movies that are pretty obvious um, and but it's like I think his feelings as a and I'm pr- pretty sure he's a socialist but it's like his feelings about socialism don't derive to me uh, from what I've seen of his film um, and I've met people like this so I'm going to just kind of put this on him without knowing him whatsoever but I think I know enough from some interviews and movies that he's made I have this feeling that he's a guy who is very high-minded and pretentious and thinks that he knows that, that most people are dumb and that his socialism is not so much about... Yes, it is about helping the people, like Selma maybe, but it's also because they're too dumb to help themselves. So they need, to be, so, so they need that help and they need to be told how to, you know, basically for, have that help forced upon them in some way and i i think it's that kind of like and then that almost goes into like crossing from socialism into like almost like communism in some way and it's like i wonder if it's like his feelings about just people in general um you know even if he's like ultimately maybe leaning towards some of the right ideas that help people like individuals but by forcing it on him because he resents them and despises them at the same time um and i was a misogynist well yeah
1: absolutely definitely yes and i think he is an elitist i think there's definitely a very strong strain of both cultural and socio-political elitism like in everything that montreal does I i think that's like I think that's why Dogville suffers I think that's why Manderley suffers especially Manderley I think that's see a I think lot of spe- specifically
0: Mandalay I, I actually still really like Dogville a lot um, but I
1: don't know I mean yeah I, here's
0: the thing is I think he's a at times a brilliant damn filmmaker and I think this movie is one of those things that goes to prove that um, he makes very interesting movies I think he has an eye I think that he does really interesting stuff sometimes. Um, he's an artist and I think all his art is going to be interesting to some degree, even if it's not my own taste. Um, things like, what is it? Nymphoma- what, what was the, nympho? Is that one of was that Nymphomaniac. Was that? Nymphomaniac. Yeah. So I was right the first time. Um, and then I can't remember what the other one is with Kirsten Dunst. Um,
1: oh, melancholia. But,
0: yeah. It's like. Even if those things aren't necessarily my my cup of tea, it's like there's still interesting aspects of those movies because he's he's an artist. Um, but yeah, like this, like the, the stuff that's come out about him, and like the more like I like learn like hear about like his po- political beliefs and his beliefs about humanity and all those kind of things, it's starting. It rubs me the wrong way, and it certainly paints, yeah. I think sometimes like the viewing experience, but okay. Um, that's enough on him. You did hear, though, that the uh, season three of The Kingdom is coming out? Did you hear that? Really? Yeah, or Riggett, or whatever, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Uh.
1: yeah,
0: yeah, next year, apparently. That's pretty cool. The, the one guy's dead, though, the guy that yells, you know, like, uh, Danish scum or whatever on the top right. of the roof, like, he's, he's the one, he's the one
1: just, you know,
0: yeah. It is. yeah. But it's an interesting thing to hear. Um, Revivals are all the rage now, I guess. Um, even even over there. <laughs> all right. So number three on your list is the Coen Brothers' Old Brother We're Out They're Out, directed by Joel Coen. Uh, it stars George Clooney, John Taturo, Tim Blake Nelson, Holly Hunter, and John Goodman. It has a seventy seven percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an eighty nine percent from audiences, um, continuing the trend of these movies that have lower critic scores and audience scores. But um. Uh, You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you have it on list?
1: Uh, So this is um, kind of a pseudo-modern retelling of The Odyssey by Homer. um, And also in ways an homage to Sullivan's Travels, um, the Preston Sturgis movie we talked about earlier this year. um, In the sense that Old Brother Worth, that was the title of the movie that um, Sullivan was going to make which is why he went and traveled the country as, like, a bum. Um, Clooney, Nelson, and uh, Totoro are three prisoners who have escaped um, with the pretense that they're going to find this treasure that George Clooney's character has buried. Um, So they set off on this adventure to escape the law and to get to this treasure before the town uh, gets flooded out for... I guess they're creating a dam, building a dam is the reason for it. Um, so it's mostly, I mean, it's all connected, but it's kind of a series of just different vignettes and encounters, like the people they encounter on the way. Um, they meet a young black musician who's kind of a fill-in for the Robert Johnson um, "Sold to soul to the devil at the crossroads character. Um they become an unknown, like hit musical group by recording a song for um. Uh, what is what is that actor's name? Uh, uh, Stephen Root. Yeah, Stephen Root. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Who plays like Tony the, the Homer, Homer character? Yeah, right. yeah. Um. Who basically like in the end that's what causes them to get pardoned and yeah. A lot of ridiculous things happen in this movie. It's a pretty solid comedy throughout, um, but also has some really good character moments, um, especially between um, Clooney, who's a sort of elitist fop, kind of scalawag, and um, Totoro's Pete, who's more of like a down-to-earth, loyal, dumb, but street smart guy and then um Tim Blake Nelson's just sort of any way the wind blows mm-hmm. uh lovable idiot right. um i don't know it's it's a beautifully filmed movie um i love the setting of uh like that rural rural south um especially in the the 1920s i guess is when this would take place I think so. Well, it's in the depression, so it's got to be like sometime in the late twenties. Okay, because they do say early on we got this whole depression thing happening, right? Um, I know that um because they filmed in the summer, they had to color correct a lot of it to kind of add like a sepia tone to everything Mm -hmm. to sort of make it look dusty. But like, I love that look, like that really like dusty, hazy midsummer like. Kind of like we talked about last week with um, reflecting skin, but this is much more toned down. Like the right. colors aren't quite so vibrant and bright, but it still is um really beautiful to look at. Um, some pretty great performances, most notably like the three lead characters are all really great in it. Um, but some good um, supporting performances like Goodman, Holly Hunter, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Root is really good in the supporting mm-hmm. performance. Um. Charles Durning as the, um, governor, erstwhile right. governor of, like, the, the state. Um, I like this movie, I think, I loved this movie when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really, and I mean, consistently engaged by the music in the movies particularly. Like, I love the use of, like, the the old school like gospel blues music throughout to like just kind of present that feeling of I don't know, like that God it's almost like a like a Christian mysticism kind of
0: mm-hmm.
1: where like God's hand is in everything, and that's the driving force behind like every all these things that happen and in them like averting disaster and anytime. Like, bad things befall him is sort of when Clooney, who's the guy that, like, doesn't believe in God, really, is kind of being blasphemous, like, their lives take a turn for the worse. Um, and it really is at the end when he sort of just embraces and asks, you know, for time with his wife and daughters, that the symbolic, like, the flood comes in and washes all the bad things away and saves them. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's it's a really well-done movie. It's got some really funny moments to it. Um, some really great chemistry between the leads. Um, again, I think the soundtrack is pretty amazing in it. Um, I think Torturo is probably my favorite part of the movie. In yeah. all honesty, yeah. just like his his slow slow turning mind that like belies this almost like animal intelligence kind of like it's just it's mm-hmm. a really great performance. Yeah, I agree. And probably just because like they know him so well, like. know he's able to like intuit their whatever like the meanings behind like their script and whatnot and i don't know just it's a it's really great movie i really enjoy it
0: i think tituro is uh like he's popped up in a number of things that we've talked about like on this podcast actually we ever talked about the big lebowski i don't think Yeah. yeah i don't think we have but um but I mean, he's not, he's popped up actually a number of things here. So he's popped up in like "Do the Right Thing." He's popped up in Miller's Crossing. Um, there's this movie. There's something else. Oh, he got game. He has a small role in um, there. And I know he's popped up in other things. What were they? To Live and Die in L.A. He's actually has actually Totoro's already like topped like everybody else for the number of appearances on this list um their minor roles like supporting roles usually more so but um I, there's at least one more um that i'm not thinking of but anyway like tutor is really underrated he is like he's really underrated about how, how how much nuance he puts into these little minor roles um and um yeah like i i really liked him a lot in this i really liked Clooney in this a lot yeah. Um, I, I think the three principal leads, like all of the, you know, the the, the three guys, you know, uh, are are all really good in their roles. Um, this is one of those first roles that, to me, you start seeing Clooney breaking away from the Clooney, like '90s Clooney, because um, you remember '90s Clooney. He's still doing it in um, Out of Sight, even though I like that movie a lot. It just fits the role better. Uh, I mean, I was just all, all well and out of sight, but it's like he's still doing the whole "all shucks, let me look at the ground" um, for you know thirty seconds, and then like you know cast my eyes up at the woman who's talking to me so I can look sexy. Um, right. That that was his acting style for so long, like during ER and all that kind of like time period in the nineties. Sure. And um, this is where you start first start. This is two thousand now, and you first start seeing him break out of that a little bit. And I start. I think you start seeing it even more in One's Confessions of a Dangerous Mind that he directs. Like, and he has that like supporting role in it. Um, I can't. Yeah, something like that. So it's like I. I, I think this is really interesting because you start seeing Clooney break out of his old acting method, uh, old acting ways, and like the kind of like shtick that he had, and really become a real actor. And I think this is one of the first movies that you really start seeing that. Um, and I think he does a damn good job. Um, but yeah, all the acting in this is really good. I love the fact that they incorporate real, mythical like mythical, and quotation mark figures, like sure. um, baby- Babyface Nelson, like into the story, and then it's like these other American myths, like Robert Johnson, that you mentioned, like is incorporated into this like Greek, you know,
1: right. and Greek myths too, because you have right. Poly- Polyphemus and uh, John Goodman, sure sure one-eyed like giant you know Uh Cyclops character
0: right yeah it's like so it's like taking this Greek you know taking the Odyssey and then like working these real American mythical figures and fake American mythical figures like into all of this I think is really fun it's really clever um yeah it's a solid movie I mean it, it, it the time passes it's well paced I think um, even though it's just kind of like a series of vignettes, it still keeps the story moving forward. Um, and yeah, I watched it like one Saturday morning when I woke up at like 6 a.m., like you know, randomly and just you know, started watching it. And like it was like eight o'clock in no time,
1: you know. I mean, it's, it's funny too because this is like you mentioned that with Clooney, this is also sort of a turning point for the Coens as well because this kind of marks this movie isn't. As Coheny brothers, as like a lot of their previous stuff. Right. Like it eschews a lot of the standard, almost like over the top, I don't know, hyper um, stylized techniques that they've mm-hmm. had in previous movies. Yeah. Um, and just is more of like a direct presentation of a story. Even though there are some ridiculous things that happen and, you know, there's some pretty amazing, um, moments of like scene or whatever, especially the, the, the KKK rally when they break that up and end up like dropping the flaming crucifix on um Jug Goodman, like that whole scene is mm-hmm. just really amazing mm-hmm. done I think but it's it, it feels more just like a like a rich like fully formed story. Um I'm surprised like that your complaint isn't that it has that an- anthology sort of feel to it. Even though it is like the story of just this group of people, like it is kind of like you know why? it's like, more it's a comedy at its core,
0: and and I can I can because it's a comedy I can I, I ignore it. you're a bigot. Um, all, <laughs> all comedies, all comedies have a, an a, almost like an aspect of an anthology type of thing like this. Though it's just this is more distinct. I would argue. I, that's my argument. Is that it's it's all, but it's all a bunch of spots to use, like other language, like you know, like that's all comedy is. It's just like here's this sequence, like where it's like, hey, this is the bit, you know, and here's this bit, and they're all like that. It's just like this is more distinct because they have like you know different characters and stuff like that in all. like you know. So I mean, I, I think it's the same shit.
1: Yeah, I can see that. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, yeah really, really, um, really good movie, really well done. I think that probably of all these movies, is probably the one that most people would have seen.
0: And also, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of the little minds, according to Emerson. So. <sighs> <laughs> no, I thought I thought this is a good movie, and um, you know, Ebert, um. Ebert actually didn't really like care for this that much, really, which was surprising to me. Um, uh, he, um, where, what's the key here? Um, he says all the scenes were wonderful. He talks specifically about a number of scenes that he likes. He says all the scenes were wonderful, and, and there are different ways. And yet, I let, left the movie uncertain and unsatisfied. I saw it a second time and admired the same parts and left with the same feeling. I do not demand that all movies have a story to pull us from beginning to end. And indeed, one of the charms of The Big Lebowski, um, the Cohen's previous film, is how the stoned hero loses track of the threat of his own life. But with Old Brother, Where Art Thou? I had the sense of invention set adrift of a series of bright ideas, wondering why they had all been invited to the same film. So some of the very things that like... We've both like kind of like praised, like he just kind of just thought it was kind of jumbled. Um, and I guess I can see that, like some people feeling that way, but I thought it worked, um, overall.
1: Yeah, I don't really have any, um, I don't, know. I don't think any issue with that stuff, so yeah. Uh, all right, <clears throat> you know, one last thing about this
0: movie quickly is that you mentioned because you mentioned it about uh dancer in the dark is that i read that this was a film that um was like the first to use the digitized film like to to use like a like some sort of software to go ahead and film and digitize it
1: for color Um, production yeah
0: so this isn't again like a pivotal like time period like this year it seems like, with Banchur doing what he's doing, with all, of, like, the digital stuff, like, with this, like, you know, being, like, being the first film that's, like, you know, been made into digital, um, in order to, it's, like, 2000 is that, it seems to be this year, like, is where it's, like, everything's changing.
1: Like There was something, something else that came out right around this that also did color correction and editing digitally, but I can't remember what it was. Hmm. Yeah, I just, yeah, I mean, It was, so I had, I I had a friend, a couple of friends who were in film school and were both like, you know, um, aspiring directors. And there was a lot of, I don't know, like internal angst about, do you try to continue to film things on stock or do you go to digital because you can do so much or so little money? Like despite, because back then, you know, digital video was expensive. In terms of like the well even in a relative sense, probably not that expensive, but in terms of like the equipment. But then like if you had a digital video recorder, you could record forever and like a tape was what, like twenty dollars or something? So right. and film is like super expensive and then processing film and, and the risky run of the film like you know, whatever, like being messed up or being destroyed in processing, like there's a lot of like costs there that Digital video just kind of took away, and then now almost nothing is filmed on traditional stock anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Almost everything is done digitally. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just thought it was interesting that it looks like you have those two two things, like, pop up here.
1: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah.
0: All right. So. <clears throat> All right had to put this number two later in the podcast where i'm gonna fuck all these names up all right so number two on your list is amores pedros it is directed by alejandro gonzalez and yurito it stars emilio echevarria Gail bar garcia barnal goya toledo and alvaro guerrero um and it has a 92% from critics and a 94% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, since this is probably the film that people have the least familiarity with, I would think. Do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and why you like it so much?
1: So, NRE2's, uh debut film, um, it's a series of three loosely connected stories that all take place around the centralized incident of an accident that happens one afternoon in Mexico. Um, The first vignette is about a a young man played by um, Guile Bernal, um, who's in love with his brother's girlfriend, um, who's trying to make money by dog fighting, um, so he can earn enough money for him and the girl to leave and go open a store um far away from like where they live. Um he's sort of naive in that respect because she's obviously like the the his brother, the boyfriend, is her husband, I guess they're married. Um very abusive um both to her and to um his his own brother and he's a small time criminal in the sense that he like Continuously robs these um, convenience and grocery stores, including the one that he works at. Um, He's cheating on the sister or the he's cheating on his wife. Um, So it all goes wrong because he has an unsanctioned dog fight against this guy who's kind of his chief rival and the guy shoots his dog. And then he stabs the guy and then in the ensuing car chase. They get in an accident wherein he hits the car of this woman who's a famous model um, who's living with a man who's left his wife for her. Um, she breaks her leg. And then while she's recovering, her dog gets lost under the floorboards of their house. Um, and she then further like breaks her leg trying to get the dog. And that causes her to get gangrene and have to have the leg amputated. Um, and then there's just this tension between them is to kind of like testing the boundaries of like their love and patience for each other and it's actually implied at one point that he might be considering like going back with his wife. Um and then at the same time, um, because the the dog had gotten shot in the dog fight, there's a hitman who used to be a political dissident and spent twenty years in jail and the guy that arrested him now kinda of uses him as a hitman to take out um really just anybody that they want to murder. Um, He kind of lives almost as a homeless man, but he collects stray dogs. Um, And he nurses the dog fighting dog back to health, who then kills all of his other dogs, but he kind of understands that it's the circumstances the dog was raised on, um, which sort of makes him kind of re-examine himself, I think, as a killer, Um, to the point where he doesn't even fulfill his last contract. He just takes the money from these people that have hired him and leaves, like, cleans himself up and leaves with the dog. Um, and that's that's the whole movie, pretty much. Um, I'm not really doing it justice with that description, but, like, those are the three stories that connect to each other. Um, really powerful performances, like, across the board. Um, it's very, very difficult to watch for the animal violence at times, and also difficult to watch just for the like in my mind i think of it as the curb your enthusiasm factor which is like where you know someone's doing something that they shouldn't do and they do it anyway and it's just like i don't know it's just difficult to watch someone like fail i guess like that right. yeah. um no real happy ending to any of it with maybe the exception of the hitman um you know with the hope that he's like left this money in this message of reconciliation with his daughter um and has kind of like abandoned this life of violence to like take his dog and just leave um and maybe the fashion model and her boyfriend reconcile and i mean i think there's some like measure of the idea of hope but it also is the idea that she can never be the same person that she was and her whole self-image was tied up in the fact that she was this famous model, and now she's lost that because she's lost her leg. Um, but it's really, like, frenetic and such, like, skill that he chose as a director, and especially for being a debut film. Like, it's really surprising that this is the first movie that this man made. Um but really, really affecting and emotionally tense and some really great performances and some really beautiful um, camera work. And there's some really clever camera work, especially in the multiple angles of the accident, the way that he films it um, and just kind of a bleak look at like relationships and love and like what constitutes, you know, your own evaluation, like valuation of yourself and, your valuation of your interpersonal relationships with people and like what you're willing to sacrifice for them, So really impressive debut movie. Yeah. And he's like going on to be probably one of the best directors of this generation easily. Um, one of my favorite directors, I think like super talented. Um, yeah. Well, that's it.
0: So I, I have a couple of things to say about this movie, but I I wanted to actually start off here with the, the one piece of criticism that I drew of this and just have you address it um, is that uh, Jason Korsner of BBC says sometimes there's a clear reason for dividing a film in the distinctive chapter, chapters, each following the distinctive but overlapping stories of unrelated people. Here it feels like the structure has been used used largely because no one story was long enough to stand alone in a feature film. With colorful characterization, fresh and natural performances from a mostly untried cast, and a soundtrack that betrays Inurito's DJing past, there's a lot to recommend of this. But ultimately, the structure lacks purpose. The film struggles to justify the two and a half hour running time, and the faint-hearted might find it a little gory. Um, so, in terms of like its way of like taking these three distinct stories and bringing them together, what do you think is like what is bringing these stories together, like? In your mind?
1: I mean, it really is just the...
0: Because I, I said something similar to you off air as this guy did, and I've thought about it a little bit more, and I, I have a couple ideas I'll run by, you, but I want to hear what you have to say first since
1: this is your movie. Thanks. Um, I think that... Uh, I mean, I agree that it probably does boil down to the fact that He wanted to tell this story. He wanted to tell these stories. And he wanted to have the idea of like the. Just the randomness of like circumstance. Like these interconnected things that. And there's another movie. And it's escaping me right now. There's a really famous movie. That does a similar thing. Where it's just like these really small. Inconsequential things that lead to something else. When you look at something like from a comedic perspective, it's obviously or maybe more hyper-stylized, like something that's not a good example. I think he's just he's he was interested in all three stories. I mean, I think he obviously sees the least amount of meat in the assassin storyline, like the hitman Mm storyline. And he sees the most meat in the dogfighting relationship storyline, but it's how all of those things collide together in this one instance that kind of changes the course of all, like every single life was altered in that one instance, even though none of those people have any further connection with each other or any after knowledge that that incident affected anybody else beyond themselves. Like Bernal's character is not, has no idea that, you know, that woman that was a model like lost her leg or her career changed and nobody knows anything about the Hitman character And but it's like he got the impetus to like kind of try and revive his relationship with his family and you know she has to alter like her entire perception of what her life is and Bernal basically has to like his brother dies because of his actions and He still doesn't get the girl, and he's like, he's like irrevocably altered because he's, you know, like handicapped in some ways. And I don't know. It's just, I I think that's a really, I think this is an anthology film that's tied together with what, in a less talented director's hands, would have been a sloppy um, motif or whatever. And he did a good job of like still bringing it together and making it feel powerful. Yeah. even if it's not perfect i think it's still like yeah. carry some weight I, I
0: i think if i so I, I interestingly something popped up my it's not interestingly it's it's the algorithm something popped up my feed the other day from criterion that was just written like seriously like three days ago um and it was posted on criterion's website that um broke down this movie in terms of like someone for uh, like a like a Mexican reviewer who was like writing about this movie in the context of 2000 and like why this movie is so important to Mexico And I think if I understood the geopolitical landscape of Mexico during this time period, this movie would have a lot of things that made a lot more sense to me, like in terms of like all the different stories that are going on, um, in terms of the way social classes kind of is what the thesis of the article was that like how certain political issues in Mexico and how social classes colliding kind of like is what really this movie like some degree is about, um but one of the things I've had a thought on since then also is the idea of absentee fathers and all of them. And maybe that's my own bullshit, but you think about it and it's like, here's two brothers without a father, right? It's just the mother, um, that's like left to bring them up. Um, and then it's like, you know, the one guy leaves his family. Um, and then the last, the last story particularly, you know, involves this absentee father figure. Um, and I wonder if like, you know, there's, if there's something there, certainly there's some social class stuff that goes along with some of that too. Cool. Um, but at the same time, like, I, I just wonder, um, and then it's like, even there's an absentee father and the fact that, the, yeah, like, uh, you know, with the brothers, um, you know, the Cain the and Abel story in the first, you know, right. segment, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, that goes even further, you know, it's just like a repetition of the same, shit um because you know like i kind of like i think the other day like was almost agreeing with this bbc reviewer um and it's like i started thinking about it more like is there a way that these thematically connect together um in some way and that's the best i could come up with because i really love this movie i thought it was great i i fuck you for the dog violence um and not warning not warning me about it but despite all that like um uh I thought this was an excellent movie. Um, I, I, I didn't realize I had seen a couple of his movies, um, you know, over the years. Uh, I certainly didn't know this movie whatsoever. I understand exactly why you're putting it at number two. I actually thought you might've put it at number one. Um, it, there was a possibility of it after seeing it, because I think it's that strong of a, yeah. um, of a movie um, overall. And I thought great performances, interesting direction and i actually think that one and two pair really well together here because it's all about just broken dreams right
1: right and it's interesting that like in two like widely disparate parts of the world from Mm -hmm. like really different backgrounds and whatever this year in it Maybe part of that comes from... So I was thinking about this earlier today, too, and I didn't know how to bring this up, but, you know, you look at stuff like... You look at *Dancer in the Dark, and you look at The Gift, and mm-hmm. even really just, like, if you look at Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, in the sense of it being, like, a... You know, an imagining of The Odyssey. Like, I wonder how much that millennial dread, like, played into these people making these movies. Right. That feeling of that, that Y2K you know, is everything going to end where people just had this, like, bleak outlook on, like, the future and, like, just the way the directors react to that. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah.
0: know. No, I mean, I and you have to think, too, it's like I was talking about this with Brandy the other day, and I won't spend too long on talking about this because I know we're probably going to go long with this episode in general, but I was talking to Brandy the other day about... Um, how amazing it was that golden era of television. Cause I started rewatching mad men. Like this is what brought this up. And it's like the, the, the the second golden age of television, how many damn shows. Cause I I was watching an episode in the first season that I thought was in the third season. And I was trying to figure out why I would have thought that was in the third season as opposed to the first. And what I think was going on is that there was so much good television, like things like Soprano, the wire, the shield, um, Lost, like, you know, I could just keep naming shows here, like, that all actually debuted before Mad Men did, um, and I even want to say Breaking Bad, maybe, um, might have debuted the same year before Mad Men, and I, I think what happened is that, like, I just wrapped Mad Men into this, like, growing list of, like, great television, Deadwood, um, that was happening and somehow i just assumed it happened later and it wasn't couldn't it possibly this great scene happen in the first season of that show and what i realized is that like you know like all those shows like were this combination of aging boomers and the influx of gen gen x coming to the forefront of storytelling mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, like, this weird mixture of, like, you know, of, of an of an ex-Boomer crossover with Xers kind of controlling the whole thing now, though. um In terms of anti-heroes, these, like, flawed protagonists, you know, everything's fucked. <laughs> you know, you can't win, um you know, Boulevard of Broken Dreams type shit, right? You know, right. and it's, like, I, I wonder if that's, like, here also the same thing is what I'm getting at here, is that, like, you're seeing you know in Urito, air right the the director of the first film um it's like you know um Von Trier who's foreign and actually might have some some slight crossover with some of these directors in terms of their political affiliations you know it's like you see them like kind of like bringing these things up to the surface of like you know what's going on um after I would largely say like, you know, from a social justice standpoint, a failed second administration of the Clintons um, and um, financially successful, but failed in, I think in a, a large way in a, in a social justice type way. Um, and, and, and an administration that was more about, more about like making inroads with the right, you know, in order to govern and like you know, gaining that support, so it's like you know things like three strike laws, you know, um, you know, death penalty, right? Um, it's like you know, the I wonder if like these films aren't a reaction to the kind of like middle right nature of the country at the time.
1: Well, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think Interrotu were von are reacting to that.
0: Well, I think von Trier is definitely reacting to that. I think he has this like bone to pick with um america about like you know their
1: political system and
0: stuff like that i think it's pretty obvious that he does but in yurito miguel fox is getting um elected during this time which is kind of like this populist right candidate um in 2000 like you know as as that movement is starting to happen in mexico at that time so i i do think it might be like this reaction to um you know, kind of like rightist ideals in some ways that these things are coming up to the surface about drug addiction and like, you know, drug selling and, you know, um, you know, th- think there's, there's that hmm, loosely, there's a theme here that's like developing about like, you know, mental health, drugs, violence, you know, all, all these movies are permeated with all this kind of stuff. And I, I just find it really interesting that this is like two thousand. Reviewing these films is such a pivotal year, yeah. um, in so many different ways. Like so many different ways, and I'll shut up now. <laughs> like it's, it, I thought it was fascinating watching these movies twenty years later, like, and trying to think about the time period and stuff like that. I agree with that. Yeah. So.
1: All right. Um, I guess so I don't contextualize it in the same way. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I you you.
1: I right.
0: try not to anyway. Well, right. You try not to, it's like, you don't want to know about a lot of times about directors or writers or those kind of things. Like you, you like to take, I think you like to take things as you take them. Um, It's like, you know, very similar, to like the lost highway type thing. Right. Like, it's like, I like to remember things the way I remember them. Um, it's right. like, you, you like to watch things and just take what you take away from it. Um, as opposed to a lot of times put them largely in the con now if you put them in the context yourself that's your choice and you do that um you know by making those connections um, um because some things you can't avoid it but i think like in some ways like i was trained to do that and so i just like naturally like try to find well what's going on psychologically with this person or like what you know i'm, I'm trying to find the reasons for why these themes or like those kind of things exist i think i was just trained to do that like through my education so um but yeah i just find those kind of things fast i I especially found this year fascinating out of all of them because also i lived through it like you know and i remember it like clearly like living through it um
1: and now that you're saying it like i understand and I, i think it's interesting too but at the same time it's like i like movies to exist within the context of themselves, you know, like I just want to, I want to, I don't know. I want it to be its own self-contained universe. And yeah, I'm not a big fan of like, I don't know. That's not true. Like I don't mind when things are relevant to outside sources or real world events or, but I also think that it dates itself a little too much when you look at it in that context. And I like movies to be more timeless than that. Like, I don't like movies that are dated by their political or sociological leadings or whatever, I guess.
0: Well, could I make this argument, though, is that aren't these movies, just some of these, just as relevant right now as they are in 2000? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, because some of the same know? factors are still that that might have maybe been behind it as some kind of zeitgeist and I don't think it's like a complete like oh this is a reaction to the Clinton administration I think it's more of a zeitgeist type thing like right, when right. these things happen I don't think it's like just like fuck, fuck this administration I think it's more of like this is the feeling that's rising up during this time period as opposed to anything else and those things repeat <laughs> in cycles and I think well, these movies are just as relevant now like most of these movies are just as relevant now as they were then. Um,
1: it, yeah, I, I just think, I mean, aside from The Gift, which is kind of a same thing sure. because of right. the kind of movie it is, but I think there's a universality to all four of the other movies. And especially when you consider that, you know, o Brother specifically is based on a 2,000-year-old. hmm hmm I don't know if you call that lyric, epic lyric poem or it's whatever. Epic,
0: epic poem, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah all right. So yeah, particularly going back to the original point, the two and one movie pair up really well together, considering, you know, the different countries, I think, um, like in terms of like some of the subject matter. Um, so number one on your list is Darren Aronofsky's Three. Requiem for a Dream. It stars Ellen Burstyn, Jared Leto. Jennifer Connelly, Marlon Wayans. It has a 79% from critics and a 93% from audiences um, to continue that trend. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's number one on your list?
1: It's so weird. I mean, I guess it's just the abject horror of it that maybe makes critics not like it as much. Um, so it follows the path of four addicts um, who are all addicted to different things, kind of. Um, Jared Leto's, uh, Airy slash Jim, um, Marlon Wayans, uh, Jennifer Connelly's Marion and, um, Sarah Goldfarb, right? Is that what Ellen Burstyn's name is? Sarah Goldfarb? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so Leto is a heroin addict. Um, he's in love with, uh, Marion who's a cocaine addict. Um, they're both kind of early in the movie, like sort of on the cusp of completely destructive addiction to the point where they can they're not really managing it, but they feel like they're managing it. Um Wayans and uh Leto are partners who at first are basically boosting um Sarah Goldfarb's TV um every like once a week to get the money and she has to go back and repawn it um but eventually come into a scheme where they're selling small amounts of heroin um and making a profit and um movies broken up into three seasons so it's summer fall and winter um and in the summer they're successful in the fall things kind of fall apart because the heroin supply dries up and it becomes more expensive and then um the love between uh leto and Connolly is strained because Leto convinces her basically to prostitute herself in order to get money so he can buy the heroin that never comes through um and ultimately they all end up just like broken mm-hmm. um and it's tied with uh, sarah goldfarb who wins a, an appearance on a tv show um she's obsessed with this infomercial about weight loss and Um, it's like a juicing scam thing, but she, um, gets hooked on amphetamines that she's prescribed for weight loss and the withdrawal, like the addiction and the withdrawal, like eventually makes her hallucinate, um, that the TV show is like alive and real around her and that her refrigerator is coming after her to eat her and, um, it's maybe, Maybe outside of uh, Solo, the Pasolini movie, mm-hmm. or this mid 2000s horror movie called Martyrs, it might be the bleakest movie I've ever seen. Um, there is legitimately no hope for anyone in this movie mm-hmm. at the end. Um, you know, Leto is. Leto and, and Connolly maybe have the most hope if you use your imagination to kind of assume like what that hope might be in the sense that perhaps like Leto gets his life right after having his arm amputated from having I can't remember what it's called, blood poisoning from shooting up in an open wound in his arm right? Um, Mm. and maybe Connolly maybe is Ah. young enough to like get out of what she's doing and Overcome the addiction, but
0: I would rank those one and two though as in terms of hope. It's like because he's had his arm amputated, maybe he has hope. Her last scene, it feels like there's no hope there. Only, only just because you wanna you wanna hope the fact that she's so young. It's like there's no hope in that scene at all. Like, yeah, because
1: she's cradling, um, cradling this package of. Drugs, you know, yeah. cocaine and presumably, yeah. um, like a child, and falling asleep in the fetal position. That after she's debased and, mm-hmm. you know, basically sacrificed all of her own personal morals, right. in order to score these drugs, she just like that's her release and whatever she has that until the next time she has to right Debasis. same thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Huh. but yeah, just a very. So, there's a lot a lot to unwrap in this movie, mm-hmm. um, even beyond like the themes of loyalty and family and addiction and the pressure of wanting to appear successful, even though you're not doing anything to truly make yourself successful. like the idea that Sarah Goldfarb feels good because she's got the best spot on the front stoop with the other old ladies in the building, and it's only because mm. she's going to be a contestant on a game show, basically, and yeah. the you know, like, sacrificing her health so she can fit in the stress that she wore, what you presume is probably 10 years prior. Um, that's that's the performance of the movie, right? Yes. Right there is Ellen Burstyn and Jennifer Connelly, in my opinion, are the two best performances. And I I really find Marlon Wayans to be kind of a revelation in this role because you don't think of him as being like a talented, dramatic actor. But lends this like really incredible air of just sort of like comedic, you know, a guy that plays things off by using his sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Um... But in reality is like tortured and just kind of longs to be like a little kid again and be embraced by his mom and I don't know. There's a lot of um a lot of really sad, dark, uncomfortable truths in this movie. And you can see a lot of people that you know, you know, there's people that are like the we just talked about the Grifters last week, but these people are like true Like grifters in the sense that they don't even have any success in it. Like they're just getting by. Right. And all it takes is one bad, you know, one bad move, one bad one bad beat, and like they're done. Like that's the end of it. Um I don't know. So acting wise, impeccable. Like every performance movie is incredible. Yep. Um I am not a big fan of Jared Leto, but I think that Jared Leto, like, pretty much perfectly captures that feeling of the the charismatic drug addict and i think that like especially around here like you all know that guy yep um i think that you really feel bad for marion who's the Mm -hmm. um new york socialite who's kind of like slumming it with her drug addict boyfriend right but gets sucked into that life and away from her Manhattan Beach parents to go live in Coney Island, basically.
0: Well, right, she's the dreamer, the artist that like wants to design clothes and gets sucked into that life, you know. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Um, we all know that person too. You know, as this overly sensitive kind of happy-go-lucky guy that has these dreams and aspirations, but is also another guy that just like just one bad break away from having his life ruined really just wants nothing but like the simpler life that he had when he was a kid you know and then Ellen Burstyn some just lonely old woman who just wants to be loved by somebody is disappointed by her son and her husband's dead and she doesn't really feel like appreciated by the people that she's quote unquote friends with and just sacrifices all of her own health and whatever like that's the most depressing thing is the stuff with her at the end I can't Uh, say it's 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 the most depressing but it's really tough to watch Yes. Stuff with her in the end in the um, mental institution, getting the EST and losing her her red hair, her orange hair that she had dyed, and uh, it's just such a hard movie. So, I, I was, I thought Pie was okay when I saw it. Like I like Pie, but I wasn't a huge fan of Pie in the same way that some people were. I didn't like it when I first saw it, and I. I thought it was fine. You know, there was stuff about it I liked a lot. I thought there was some real talent there, but I wasn't necessarily super interested in it. I wasn't able to see this movie in the theater because it was either unrated or NC-17, but it wasn't carried around here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't super motivated to drive up to um, Philly to see it just because I wasn't that huge of a fan of Pie. But man, when I watched this movie, like you heard so much about this movie. um. When it came out on DVD, when it, when it was reviewed in the theaters, when it came out on DVD, and how like difficult it was to watch. And it was around this time that I started, like a little after this, that I started reading um, Hubert Selby, the guy mm-hmm. whose book, the, his book, Requiem for a Dream, that this movie is based on. Right. And I was just like completely blown away. And I, it was years after watching, before I watched this movie again. And this is still only the third time I've ever watched this movie. And I think even the second time I watched it, I don't think I watched it in full. I think I had to, like, stop watching it at points. But it's just so so beautifully filmed. And, like, his combination of, I don't want to say camera tricks, but, like, doing things in slow motion and speeding the film up. And it, it feels like it feels when you're chemically altered you know like you feel like i would feel drunk sometimes watching it like just it feels sweaty and it feels uncomfortable and it feels like itchy inside watching this movie and i think that he captures that feeling really well Mm -hmm. um you had mentioned to me off air about the the score and i could not remember exactly what you said but i'll give you my impression and i kind of want to talk about like what you think about it I think that it's, I think that it's ingenious that you take this really, and I know it was written for the movie, this really, like, classical, stirring, string, orchestral movement that's got this inherent, like, beauty to it, and it's undercut with the same, like, noises that they use in the cuts for the um the shots of addiction so anytime someone's taking drugs right you get between like three and like six quick cuts of showing the process of taking the drugs like drilling it in that there's this almost like preternatural like mechanical efficiency that goes with like getting high like that you just become this machine that knows like the steps and just does them that there's beats and like similar in a lot of ways to the way that von Trier sets up the musical numbers in dancer in the dark, mm. where she has the audio cues of like the chunk chunk chunk, and that's what like she hears that as the rhythm of the world. And like to these people, this is the rhythm of their world. So it's the the twist of the cap, the flick of the lighter, right. bubble of the water, the plunge of the syringe, the whole blood makes noise thing of you know mm-hmm. that's of, yeah. like yep the veins and the pupils dilating and like all those things have a noise and this mechanical precision to them and it's yep. like watching ellen burston's character graduate through the steps of that where like when you see leto and um Connolly and and wayans early on like they're already pros kind of it like doing these things and like she starts with just Really just trying to be healthier and like taking these pills because the doctor right. prescribed them. To the point where she's like popping a couple at a time and multiple times a day, and it's just I don't know. It's the visual and audio cues there, and the way that he uses that score with that undercurrent of just an industrial almost like nine inch nails esque, like industrial grind, like underneath these stirring strings. And that each time that they use that score, it almost I don't want to say undercuts because undercuts isn't the right word, but it almost like underscores yeah. how awful the thing that just happened. Yeah. And it's crazy that so I looked up, and again, like you know that I don't do this very often, but I looked up the um it's Eternal Light is the name of this what's in Latin. Whatever. Lux
0: Lux Eternia, yeah. Yeah.
1: So that that's what it's called, and it's like at their darkest moments, these mm-hmm. are they're like, mm-hmm. This is the music right. that's undercutting it. But right. again, it's like this beautiful, like, stirring, sweeping, like, string section, and then just chunk, yeah, chum, like underneath it. And it's, I don't know, it's, in- yeah, so it's like,
0: uh, yeah, it's fucking brilliant. And I, I am glad that you put this number one because I think it's a fucking achievement in filmmaking. Um, watching this again like i did not want to watch i said i would never watch this movie ever again yeah. this and henry portrait of serial killer i said i'd never watch again and then you put him on the podcast and i thought i had to watch him again so um and i watched this again i made the, i thought that drinking would somehow help the process of watching this again it did not like it did not at all like um it 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 worsened the whole thing but so, this is Clint Mansell that's like, that does the score for this and, and does, you know, Lux Eternia. Like, and that score over top of these quick cuts, which it's, and if you haven't seen this movie, which, you know, I don't know why you're listening to this, if you haven't seen it, but it's like, if you haven't seen this movie, um, you've probably seen Pulp Fiction at least. And imagine, like, this the, the, the scene with Travolta, um, you know, shooting up. And make it quick cuts as opposed to kind of like slower, like more like methodical, like, you know, cutting of like, you know, the shooting up scene. Um, Blood make noise. Brilliant fucking reference, by the way. Like it's because it's exactly right. Like, um, like exactly right. But um, this is commonly called like any more like hip hop montages, like, you know, and like they've been used for decades, but like, that's what this is called. And it's like, that leading into the pie effect like you know which became such like a common thing of like the camera like kind of like you know want a stick in front of the person almost like viewing them from like you know so you get like a you're you're looking at a close-up or like you know almost like a like a like a medium slash close shot of the person as they're walking and it's like the camera is moving with their motions right it's like all of that shit is so fucking well done and depressing and if you notice that damn score that same score that that same song it it i think it takes like almost like maybe like a half hour for it to first appear and then it just increasingly just keeps coming at faster paces throughout the movie like to where it's like okay so i'm just going to imagine here because i didn't time it but it's like say it comes 30 minutes into the movie next time it comes 25 minutes into the movie next time it comes 20 minutes and then you know or whatever it's like it it, and it just comes faster and faster to where it's like towards the end it feels like it happens like three times in the span of like you know and what it does is it creates this sense of like it creates this sense of pacing, like of like a, of, of of audio cue to go along with the with the narrative of just how far they're spiraling down, right? And it's absolutely brilliant. Um, this is this is you've said this about a couple of these movies. This is a damn hard movie to watch. It's there, there's no hope. There's none. Like, I don't see any hope for any of these characters, necessarily. You're right. Leto is the most that I can possibly see in this case. But there's no hope here. The Ellen Burston character is maybe the most depressing character in the history of film. To me. Like... It's
1: really sad.
0: It's devastating. It is devastating. Because, like, here's the thing. is like... And I think it's worse now. I think it's worse. It's like I grew up with grand. You 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 grew up with a grandmother like this too, that was a hard woman, right?
1: Right. And it's
0: like I. It's like now that I'm older and I can see my mother being older. It's like I can see it. Oh yeah. And it and it's fucking awful. It's fucking so.
1: It that that's the toughest part. I think is the fact that like here's a lady that's basically your mom yeah. or your grandma. And it's yeah. like yeah. one small act away, you know, because I, I, I'm
0: saying in 2002, all I could, when I first saw this, I think it's like, all I could imagine was my grandmother. Right. Cause of the age. And it's like, Oh, well, my grandmother's not like that. And it's like, what's happened is in 20 years since my mother's gotten to that age. And yeah. it's like, Oh shit. Like, that's exactly right. And now I feel even more that character.
1: I mean, I kind of thought about my mom at the time too, just because i had already, like, when I saw this movie, I was already out of the house. And right. Sure. I had yeah. And I wasn't, was like, yeah, right. You know, and we we say this a lot both on the podcast and off air, but it's like that, the Kabodi the, the moment. You know, it's like, yeah, you yeah. decided to go out the front door instead of the back door. And it's right. it is There's plenty of people in this, this area. And we've talked about this, you know, because yeah. we have a really large opioid. Um, epidemic in Cecil County yeah. and there's a lot of the people that are addicted to it are in their late 50s early 60s and there are people who were on Percocet and Vicodin because of back injuries at work because this was a large industrial area for a long time mm-hmm. and there are people who are now addicted to heroin like 60 year old people shooting up because they got addicted to opioids and it's like that's yeah. and the saddest thing about it is Leto who Can barely even recognize it himself. You know what? That's that's the other tragedy too, is that Leto's character recognizes in himself his innate ability to fuck up a good situation. Right. But is so much of an addict that he can't get out of it, but is constantly trying to stop the people he loves from making the same mistakes. And is so much of an addict himself that he can't he can't even commit to it. It's just like all right, ma well just don't do it, Ma. Like, you don't want to get strung out. Like, I got to go. Because right. he's got to go, you know, sell heroin to support right. his heroin habit. Right. right. You know, he says to um, Marlon Wayans, you know, like, hey, let's not take this heroin because mm-hmm. we got a good thing going. Right. And if we get high, we're just going to fuck up. And he's like, yeah, but we just got to do one taste, right? And he's like, ah, mm-hmm. well, you know, you're right. Yeah, trying to stop yeah. her. Yeah. Um, he wants mm-hmm. her to focus, like focus right. on your your designs. Like, here, I'll rent you a space. That's all I want you to do. Like, you should stop doing this stuff. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. It's like he's he's such a such a sense sensory driven person. Mm-hmm. Like everything's about like his senses and how he feels and right like being driven towards pleasure that he almost can't even like define like the things that are really happening in his life because mm. of that or something mm. like. yeah um but yeah just it's 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 a devastating movie but it's such a brilliant movie and maybe in the way that um I was I was watching another movie for the podcast. And I won't talk too much about that movie. But I was reading about how the director said that even though the movie's about war, he doesn't think of it as a war movie. I think that even though this movie's about addiction, I don't think this movie's an anti-drug movie. I think it's... I, I don't even know what it is. But it's like, it's more than just, like, don't do drugs and this is how drugs fuck up your life. It's about... This is how, like not being able to communicate effectively or deal with your own problems like fucks mm-hmm. up yeah and it doesn't matter what the thing is you know because gold sarah goldfarb initially it isn't drugs that she's trying to use to escape it's weight loss it's the right promise in her well, head of being on this television show well
0: it's, it's the need to
1: be famous Right, they need to be known. No, someone care right. about. Me, yes, right. To, right. right. Yes, not even famous. See, yeah. yeah, everyone's going to yeah. see me, and they're all going to like me. Right, like right. that's one oh, the sad that, Oh my
0: god! And you know what? I forgot. Like the, the the shot of her back fat when she tries to zip up the dress. It's like I repressed some parts of this movie. Like I seriously repressed. it. I just put it out of my mind. Like some certain scenes in this movie like that I forgot that happened. For some reason, when I saw that scene within the first 12 minutes of the movie or whatever, where she tries to zip up that red dress and she can't get it zipped up because she has back fat now, everything just came flooding back in my brain and I was like, Jesus Christ, what the hell am I doing watching this movie again? Because this movie is just gutting. Gutting.
1: Yeah,
0: that's true. It's like, everybody should see this movie at least once, but it's, it is not a good experience. Like, at all. Like,
1: at all. <laughs> but it's also an incredibly amazing experience. It is a, It time. is an
0: incredible filmmaking. Like, you know, it is an incredible movie. In terms of the content, the subject matter, it is a gutting, terrible experience. Like some degree,
1: especially because it's like it gives you nothing to hold on to at the end of like, okay, well, at least there's this, or at least this person got out clean. Like the fact that no,
0: No, it gives you it gives you ass to ass. Like that—that's what it gives you at the end.
1: You know what? Though I'm I'm a little sad you brought that up because for the longest time, like that was the thing that people would bring up about this movie was that scene
0: it's devastating to watch frank it's hard but it's like no here here here's what's hard and i'd forgotten this part i i think i had repressed it this is what is disgusting about that scene it is not the fact that like two women are sitting there like with a dildo like you know like in, in front of a group group of men i have no problems with that as long as it's of their choice and of their volition it is the men yelling in the background. Yeah. And I feel gross even saying this right now. But chanting, not yelling, chanting, come. That made me almost nauseous. It's, 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 because I had much. forgotten it. I had forgotten it.
1: Yeah. And the fact that it's like the, it is sickening. It's interwoven with the, um, the score. And yes. Then- yes. Spread right out over these other scenes of Jared Leto's arm getting cut off and Sarah Goldfarb getting um, electroshock therapy, and Marlon Wayans, yeah, like crying himself to sleep in, a, from in the from the racist
0: guards. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, as he's going through withdrawal. Yeah, I mean, all of them in the fetal position. Um, like by and the it's like the person.
1: one thing that like is the opposite of pleasure for every single one of them, and these men, right, somehow and equate. And like see, so while you thing. say
0: you're disappointed that I brought that up, here's the thing: is I don't think people shorten it to the ass to ass or however they want to describe it, like you know, or the dildo scene. Nobody's actually ever talked about that enough to analyze what is the terrible shit about that scene. They shorten it to that because it's the thing that sticks in your mind and is representative of the end yeah. of that movie. Because it's I, the, only,
1: I only say it because people would say, "Oh, that's the movie with." Right thing sure. they would bring
0: up right but the but the, but the the fact that that scene is actually to me emblematic of the entire end of that movie because it's the most memorable out of those four sequences sure. but it, it mean, it's really it's, when people I think reference it not everybody but when a lot of people reference it I think what they mean is they're just talking about the, the grossness of the end of that movie And
1: relevance. certainly that's what I mean. <laughs> But it's horrifying. I forgot Always.
0: about the I forgot about the Channing though. I really right. did. The Channing
1: is the Channing is the worst. Right, maybe. right. The Channing and um, I don't remember that actor's name. Um, Little John or whatever. Um,
0: Andre the Giant. Yeah. Like his, he, Keith David, you mean? Like the Keith the actor, David, he, right? Hey,
1: mm-hmm. His yeah. his smile and like the close-ups of his lips and all of that yeah. stuff. It's yes. all so horrifying. Yes. yes. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, rush out and watch uh, Requiem for. <laughs> <you know. laughs> right,
0: if you wanna, if you wanna, oh my god, we're gonna talk about another movie that I said I would probably never watch ever again next month. Yeah, we are. Um, so hold on, what do we got done now here? So we got Re- we only got Requiem and Black Swan done so far, right? So we still have the Wrestler to go at some point. Yeah. Um, Fountain might be
1: on a list Fountain, sometime. Right.
0: Fountain mm. probably so yeah
1: interesting we'll come up against a couple times, i'm sure
0: all right so anyway i thought this was we talked about last week i thought it was the best list out of the four even though i thought all the lists year end lists were good this year um but yeah this was i thought the strongest representation of like five movies overall um the only mm-hmm. thing to, to me is like, even though I liked the gift, it's like if American psycho hadn't been talked about previously and was on this list, it would be maybe one of the greatest lists that like we ever talked about, like in terms of like just pure film, um, like up there with the, the, you know, palm door like, you know, yeah. list. Um, <clears throat> but yeah. So I really enjoyed watching these movies Um I'm going to similarly enjoy making you watch this movie that I think is going to make you uncomfortable um Mm. in the next like week and a half, like two weeks or whatever. Um watching it tomorrow night. Oh, okay. Um oh you're not gonna have Frankie watching
1: with you? Well maybe I don't know. We gotta watch Mandalorian, man. I gotta Right. Um But yeah, maybe we'll watch it together.
0: Yeah, because Brandy's never seen it, even though she knows the musical. Oh, what it doesn't matter. Oh, uh, what a um, spoiler! All right, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, she's actually never seen the film, so um, so yeah, we're gonna watch that here sometime in the next week or so. But yes, we also had the Mandalorian, um, uh, as well to try to catch up on here soon, um, and then Disney stuff for the '80s animated list. Um, so, um. All right. So, all right. I, I just wanted to take a since this is like kind of like our official year end episode, like really when it comes down to it, even though the next time will be numbered. I just wanted to thank everybody for the increased listenership throughout the year. Um, we really appreciate that. We really appreciate anybody who is like liked, shared all of our stuff throughout the year. Um, like we we are trying to make a go of this. We're trying to like, you know, you know, increase the listenership in the, you know, of this podcast. Um, So remember, please, that like shares are the most important thing. Um, The other most important thing is if you use Apple podcast or whatever podcast app you use is to go rate us if it has a rating system, leave comments if you can, like even if it's just a sentence or so, Um, those kind of things help get us up even higher um, if you could do that for us. Um. So, um, thank you so much for um the listens for the downloads, and I hope everybody has a if you if you don't listen to our bonus episode, I hope everybody has a good holiday. Um, considering the circumstances, and um, is safe. Uh, other than that, Frank, I figure.
1: Yeah. Thanks everyone <laughs> for a happy holiday. Uh, Put it well. What I don't you know what okay. All right.
0: Thank you for listening, everybody. <laughs> Have a good night. <laughs>